0: This is Kincaid and Breckenridge, exclusively on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. This is the Kincaid and Breckenridge Highlights Podcast for March the 29th. What a controversial day we had today, talking to Tara Haley, who is a journalist, uh, writes about science and uh, health issues for uh, Forbes.com, talking about this vaxxed movie that was pulled from Robert De Niro's Tribeca Film Festival.
1: We also talked about the controversy over fighting in the NHL and the link between fighting and concussions and CTE. John Branch from the New York Times joined us to talk about some interesting revelations contained within internal emails being circulated amongst some of the NHL's top brass on the subject. You can listen to Kincaid and Rich Monday to Friday, 930 to 1230 on News Talk 770. When it comes to vaccine controversies, if there are such a, a thing, uh, certainly the name Andrew Wakefield is uh, is not far from it. Uh, he, of course, is... Well, disgrace doesn't even begin, I think, to describe everything that's come out now about that infamous paper that he authored back in the 90s uh, about uh, vaccines and a potential link to autism. Uh, so despite being exposed and despite being uh, losing his, his medical license, etc., he still has support, and he's involved in a, a new film about vaccines called "Vaxed: from cover-up to catastrophe, right? He, he still has a following and still has people who, I, I think, believe or want to believe what it is he's, he's saying. Now, people want to watch this film, they're, they're certainly entitled to do so. Uh, I, I think the science is pretty clear about what Wakefield claimed to have discovered and about the, the general overall safety of vaccines, but nonetheless, you know, this stuff is out there and people can watch it question is, does uh, anyone have an obligation to give him a platform? I, I would say no. Now, the the uh, film festival that uh, Robert De Niro is responsible for, the Tribeca Film Festival, and this was Robert De Niro's decision initially, apparently, was to allow this movie
0: vaxxed into the festival. If you watch the trailer, the first thing is a logo that says it's an official selection, 2016 Tribeca Film Festival.
1: Now, they haven't changed that yet. I guess they're going to have to because uh, Robert De Niro himself had a rethink and decided not to show this. He put out a statement saying, my intent in screening this film was to provide an opportunity for conversation around an issue that's deeply personal to me and my family. But after reviewing it over the past few days with the Tribeca Film Festival team and others from the scientific community, we do not believe it contributes to or furthers the discussion I had hoped for.
0: Would you like to hear uh, a snippet from the trailer, which is to say, here is some clips from a movie uh, directed by Andrew Wakefield, totally without context.
2: You who run our health agencies in this country, you have an obligation to make sure that these studies are complete, thorough, so that we have all the facts. Oh my God, I cannot believe we did what
3: we did. Um, But we did. Omission of crucial data, destruction of documents misleading the Congress, grievous harm to
2: innocent children.
3: Everything I've been telling my patients for the last 10 years has been based on a lie and a cover-up. Parents should be able to count on federal agencies to tell them the truth.
4: In 1978, the prevalence of autism was about 1 in 15,000 children. If we assume that things are going to continue
2: as they have, we can predict that by 2032, 80% of the boys born will
4: end up on the autism spectrum. Half the children, 80% of the boys. It's a vast number of children who are being diagnosed with autism every day.
0: All right, so uh, just to be clear, that's a film film. Uh, that takes a position that's a documentary film that takes a position now now this to me uh, this conversation bleeds into several categories and and I'll stand by what I said before I think the film should be shown at Tribeca but I also think that we need to be deeply deeply concerned in this society of ours about people who masquerade documentaries and podcasts as trials and retrials Adnan very well could have done it same with Stephen Avery And this documentary doesn't mean that there's been a cover-up. It's merely a documentary claiming that there has been one.
1: But it lends legitimacy
0: to it, I think, is the
1: concern. Our next guest has been following this very closely. Tara Haley is a science and health journalist, writes for Forbes, a contributor at Forbes.com, and also her own website, RedWineAndApplesauce.com. Tara, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program
4: hi thank you very much
1: all right well you you wrote one blog post initially about how robert de niro broke your heart but then uh followed that up with uh thanking him for for doing the right thing so what exactly happened here
4: well um the documentary is basically trotting out the same old autism causes that causes vaccine or excuse me vaccines cause autism trope that has been around now since 1998. And dozens of studies have shown that it's wrong. But this is going a bit further. It's very insidious because it's supposing that the CDC covered up an association between vaccines and autism in African-American boys between the ages of 18 months and 36 months. Um, The thing is, the documents relating to all of this are freely available to the public. I've seen them myself. And there's nothing there. There's no there there. (laughs) So... Screening this was only going to cause more harm. It was going to harm vaccine um, beliefs and, and confidence in parents. And it was also going to harm the autistic community even more so. That was my bigger concern because the autistic community has been ignored much of the time in terms of supports that they need because so much money has been spent trying to prove this other claim that we know is false is still false. It also stigmatizes them because the parents that are in this, based on the preview, are portraying their children as damaged, which is a common trope among those who are in the vaccines-caused this camp, which is not a fair or appropriate way to portray people in the autistic community. So I was, he really did break my heart because I absolutely love Robert De Niro and he's done so many amazing films that have touched me personally. And that was the only way I
0: could convey how I felt about it. Well, I, I do like, though, that uh, we finally have an actor, uh, unlike Leonardo DiCaprio, but Robert De Niro, who's willing to say, look, I'm an actor, not a scientist, so maybe I should just yeah, stick yeah. to my knitting. Um, I, You know, I like what you said about the autistic community because I, that's, that's where my compassion in this situation is, too, that the more we talk about, uh, uh, the, the more we propagate this myth that vaccines cause autism, the less we are actually focusing on autism and how to, uh, I don't want to say deal with it, but, you know, how we can support uh, families who have, uh, uh, you know, a brother, or sister uh, who are are autistic. Now, um, having said that, I mean, like an analogy to that is, you know, we we don't talk about uh, children with Down syndrome that way. We don't, uh, we don't look at, uh, we don't ask parents with Down syndrome kids uh, to make documentaries about how something made their baby damaged and they're lesser humans.
4: Exactly. And that's the problem here. Uh, There's also a lot of misinformation in there that the complaint that autism rates are skyrocketing to the point where 80% of boys and half of all children will have autism is utterly ridiculous. We know very clearly why autism rates have going up. And it has everything to do with changing diagnostic criteria, the way that we actually classify people. Um, As the autism rates have gone up, rates of other neurological conditions and what was called previously retarded or intellectually disabled, those rates have gone down. It's a switching over. And we also have increased awareness. We know what to look for earlier on. So the people who weren't getting any services before and were struggling, even if they didn't have a low IQ, those people are actually getting identified and getting support now.
0: Well, that, so, that's we, why we call it we, the, the, the autism spectrum disorder, right? Because there's, exactly. there's like it's such a broad swath now. And there was a controversy a couple of years back when Asperger's uh, w- was like just kind of lumped in with it. And there were a whole bunch of people going, well, hang on a second. That, that just totally skews the numbers now.
4: Well, and they, now people with Asperger's are just considered autistic. They actually remove that classification, but it doesn't necessarily remove those people from the pool. So, for example, the co-author of my book, um, Emily Willingham, she has a son who was originally diagnosed with Asperger's. He's now considered still on the spectrum. So it's a lot of people assume that if you have autism, you're intellectually disabled. You have a low IQ. You can't talk. They have a lot of assumptions. I've taught students in high school who have autism, and I still am in touch with them. I have friends who are autistic. It's not what people suppose. And some of those friends are non-speaking. You can be non-speaking and still be a a member of society, just like you could be deaf and not hear and be a member of society. There's a lot of misconceptions out there about what autism is. It's definitely a disability, and it's definitely a challenge for parents who have no experience helping their children um, with autism you know, deal with it and, and find support, that is definitely true. And it is a disability. However, it is a disability that if we poured more research and money into helping these families know what to do and interventions to help these children thrive earlier on, then we wouldn't think of it so much as an epidemic as a disability like deafness or blindness that we need to accommodate and recognize the other gifts that these children have.
1: Well, look, I mean, as you say, I mean Wakefield's own research was bunk, and we know the, the whole story around that now. As you say, this whole CDC whistleblower thing is, is nonsense. The, the question has been studied many times. The, these studies have been pub- published. The evidence is pretty overwhelming. But there are those who say, well, well terrifying. If, if the evidence is so overwhelming in, in favor of vaccines, why not let this sc- film be screened? Why, why should we be afraid of this movie? Um, it's
4: a good question at it, it first blush. The movie certainly has a right to be shown somewhere. I mean, there's no, I, I don't support any kind of you know, censorship. The government shouldn't be coming out and saying, hey, you shouldn't show this. Right. I don't think it should be given a platform, especially at a prestigious festival such as the Tribeca Film Festival, because that gives it legitimacy. In addition to giving it legitimacy, we are presuming that everyone who watches this documentary is going to have the information that they need to critically analyze it, and they may not. They may not know where those documents are to look at them. Um, I've, been, I've been reporting on this for about six years now, and I had to really dig into it to reason, and see, okay, what's going on? And the, re- the claim that they're making is based on a statistical change. I mean, if you, if you get into the nitty-gritty, which I'm not going to go into because it's, it's very much in the weeds, the issues with the study that they're trying to look at, it's a statistical thing. It's, it, it, it's very nitty-gritty. And you're not going to have people who are viewing this documentary have the background they would need in epidemiology and statistics to critically analyze what they're claiming. So it's going to be very misleading, and it's perfectly reasonable to, you know, to suppose that some people who had dismissed it as, oh, we know that's, that hasn't been proven, to come back and say, oh, wait, wait, you mean there's a government agency who did show it? So it still has the opportunity to harm.
0: Right. and so, But people who say that this film should be shown, and now that it's not being shown, that censorship, et cetera, et cetera, Uh, they're also the ones who who, who feel that this feeds into their conspiracy theory, right? They're they're the ones who use this as saying, well, look, they won't let it be shown at Tribeca because Big Pharma blocked it. It's just another Big Pharma blah, blah, blah. So what do we say to that?
4: Well, first of all, it's not censorship. Um, censorship is when something is not allowed to be shown, and they have every ability. I, I've got videos myself on YouTube. If they don't know how to u- YouTube, I don't really know how to help them. I mean, if they want the movie seen by a wide audience, it's not hard to do. Right. They can put it, you know, they can put it online. So it's obviously not censored because no one is saying you can't show it. It's just Tribeca saying, hey, we looked at this video, and you know what? This film is not up to our standards, and I think that was an appropriate decision because from what I know of the film, it wouldn't be up to their standards. There, I've done documentaries, there are standards for documentaries, and this would not meet them by the barest of uh, qualifications. So it definitely draws attention to it in a way that's unfortunate, but the large response from the media was a giant shrug after the fact, it was, it, as far as the claims were concerned. It was a, hey, Robert, what the heck are you doing? And then it was a big shrug about the autism vaccines because we revisited this question so many times. So I still think that people will not seek it out unless they're already part of that conspiracy community
1: right now now robert de niro himself has as an autistic child right and and he cited this in his initial defense and he said look i'm not endorsing this film i'm not anti-vaccine just want to have a conversation around the issue what if they had still shown the film but reached out to people like you or emily willingham or some of the other people you mentioned and said look come to the festival, let's have a roundtable, let's have a discussion, we'll show the film, but then present the other side after the fact or have a conversation about these, these, these issues. What would you have felt about that kind of an approach?
4: I'm going to answer that with a question. What if we ran a documentary that claimed that the Holocaust did not exist, and in the process of that we invited some Jewish theologians and some Holocaust survivors and some historians on a round table to discuss the film? Right.
1: No, yeah, I, mean, I see it, your point.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, the film is a flat out lies. It's false. And it's to legitimize that by discussing it further. Not only is it a waste of time, it doesn't help anyone. It's not productive. I definitely think we need conversations about um, autism. I definitely think we need to continue research into the safety of vaccines. That should be an ongoing thing constantly. And it is. So neither of those issues are issues that don't deserve attention but they deserved atten- attention in different
0: spheres. Tara, it's been a fascinating conversation. We're going to leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time today.
4: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: All right, take care. Tara Haley uh, is our guest. She is a writer for Forbes, uh, also blogs at uh, redwineandapplesauce.com and tarahaley.net also.
1: And by the way, she mentioned that book, uh, Tara Haley and Emily, uh, Emily Willingham. It's called The Informed Parent. And, and she mentioned her co-author, Emily, uh, who's written a lot about this issue too. And, and she herself is as Tara said, has, has an autistic child. Look, you know, so, so it, that makes it emotional. It's emotional for Robert De Niro, right, which is why it was personal at some level for him to want to have this conversation. I appreciate him having an open mind about it and, and reaching out to the medical and scientific community and saying, okay, wait a second, I make the wrong decision here? What, what's the evidence around this? What, what approach should I be taking here? And, and the response is that you really shouldn't be giving a platform to this stuff. And so I I think he did
0: make the right decision personally. All right. Let's take a break right here. Bring it up again after this uh, short pause. It's Kincaid of Breaking Ridge News Talk 770. Welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. Um, I got to say this, though, Rob. The the people, uh, the parents who are affected by this, uh, I can't blame them for wanting an explanation and accountability, though there isn't one and there's none to be had. I mean that's a reflex that I, I certainly sympathize with, um, or rather empathize with. I should say, I don't understand. I don't understand people who are so entrenched in just denying all the data. Like the debunking of the Andrew Wakefield uh, piece, the the study in the Lancet was so fantastic that the United Kingdom stripped him of his license to practice medicine. So they didn't. They took. They did not take it lightly. And it's also not as though he just like oh you know I. I misinterpreted the data in the study that I found. He, he fudged it, and then he still defends it. So, so my point is this, is that there are people out there who are affected, like Robert De Niro, right, who are intimately affected um, by autism, and they want a, an explanation. And it's something that we don't have explanations for right now. Well, I, you know, I think if, if you look at, uh, you know, the research that's
1: being done and discoveries that are being made, uh, there, there's a lot happening. And and I think unfortunately this this is kind of a, a distraction from that. It it reminds me a little bit of a few years ago when it comes to to multiple sclerosis. And you had the, the Italian surgeon who claimed that he had the, the miracle cure, the liberation treatment, uh CCSVI is what it was known as. And and you had politicians here in Canada saying uh, we need to uh, we need to fund this. We need to throw money at this, uh, and and it really started to dominate the conversation around MS. Even after study after study after study came out subsequently saying, you know what, there's nothing here. He was wrong. We can't find a connection at all. And you know, at the same time, he still had politicians saying, you know, we, we gotta we gotta support this. We gotta investigate this. We gotta study this. It became a distraction. And you've had so much that's come out since then and discoveries that have been made and advances are being made and understanding what causes this and how to treat this. It becomes a distraction. The money and the resources are going to where they don't need to go. So whether it's MS or it's autism, you know, the research and the expertise and the, the research dollars need to go where the evidence is taking us. And say, well, what's causing this? What do we know about what causes this? What do we know about how we could potentially address that? If we're barking up the wrong tree, we're wasting that money and people are going to suffer.
0: And we're totally barking up the wrong tree. You know, I I stand by what I said before. I think the film should be shown because I, I think now that they've got this fire to put out. And I think you'd hear from a lot more Tara Haley's if they had shown the film. Because I think that there are people that are constantly being introduced to concepts in this world. And there are people that are new parents that have new babies and they're hearing about, oh, the dangers of vaccination, uh, which the primary danger is your kid might get measles if you don't vaccinate your kid. could die of some disease that we've eradicated through these miracles called vaccines, excuse me, these scientific advances called vaccines. But but my point is that if you let the conversation happen, um, then you can get the information out there. Whereas if you don't let the conversation happen, then I fear that maybe some people will get the misinformation elsewhere, and that's my point.
1: There was no good answer here. The original mistake was made, I think. So the two choices were to still show the film or not show the film, but there's no good outcome because now they're they're martyrs, and and they're and they're going to take down that logo. And instead, now it's going to be see the film that they didn't want you to see, <laughs> see the film that uh, that was banned at this film festival, and it just makes it more alluring, which is unfortunate. Listen, we got to take a break here. We're back with more Kincaid and Breaking Ridge right after this.
0: I'm Roger. That's Rob. We're going to talk some hockey in this half hour, but not the fun stuff, not the uh, not the stick and the puck part, but the fists and the gloves on the ice and the trauma that it leads to and the tragedy that uh, sometimes ensues.
1: Well, look, I mean, we're, we're learning a lot more about concussions in general, right? And, and multiple concussions and what that can lead to in the long term and the tragic consequences it's had. Obviously, football is dealing with this problem right now. Football doesn't have a fighting problem. You don't have players in football getting in fist fights and that's what's causing concussions, right? So uh, fighting is not the exclusive cause of concussions, but in the NHL in particular, does fighting lead to concussions? Uh, our players are players, have players been encouraged to fight? And has that led to multiple concussions? And so is the NHL contributing or has it contributed to the problem? I mean, that's something specific that the NHL is going to have to address. I know there are lawsuits coming forward regarding concussions. There's a class action lawsuit, as a matter of fact, dozens of former players have signed on to this. So there is that medical question. What's causing concussion in sport? What do these leagues know about the long-term health problems? What are they doing about it?
0: So that's why these revelations today are very interesting. Mm-hmm. By the way, John Branch is just on hold. We're going to get to him in a sec. But Is the train pulling into the station on this the CTE stuff, the concussion stuff? Because, I mean, you're right, the NFL is acknowledging it. At least, uh, but one rogue executive is acknowledging it. The NHL is doing it. Dale Earnhardt Jr. today says he's going to donate his brain to research uh, when he's not using it anymore. I feel like, uh, like this one's kind of yeah. Well, I mean, you know,
1: here. we saw how Sidney Crosby's career was almost derailed. Eric Lindros, Mark Savard, Paul Correa, other players who have you know had their careers cut short because of concussions. So I mean, it's a problem not just for for
0: enforcers. That's true. Uh, but the enforcer angle is uh, uh, what we're going to focus on right now. John Branch joins us, New York Times uh, writer, also the author of "Boy on Ice: The Life and Death of Derek Bougard. John, it's good to have you back on the show. Good morning, guys. So, first of all, we we get these these emails um, that, that that are you know being shared between, I guess, Gary Bettman and uh, some of the uh, lieutenants, if you will. That's what I've been saying all morning uh, with the NHL. What, what how did we come in how, how did you come in possession of these emails i guess and and what's the nature of them what are they discussing
2: yeah it's interesting it's all part of the lawsuit that you guys just mentioned the class action lawsuit um between former players and the NHL and the former players have been arguing for a long time to re- to release a lot of the emails the internal documents and the NHL has said well we don't think you ought to have those they have released a few here and there, but now they have the judges basically unsealed uh, dozens of them that the NHL had argued that should not be unsealed. And among these is probably, probably the most interesting part of this case to date, um, and that is a, an email exchange between Gary Bettman, Bill Daly, and Brendan Shanahan back in 2011. Um, shortly after the death of three enforcers um, that summer, if you remember that summer very well right. oh, yeah because well, um, it yeah. seems as
1: though they're, they're they're acknowledging what everybody else more or less knows, but so why is it significant though that they're acknowledging it at all
2: well it's it's significant because they have publicly and legally never said this before. you know in the court of law and in publicly, they've never said that there's any sort of link between fighting concussions and what Bill Daly at email says. Uh, calls personal tragedies, um, which he was referring to the suicides of Rick Rippian and Wade Belak and the, the overdose death of Derek Bogart. Um, so they have always said, hey, there's no proof that um, fighting necessarily means you're going to get more concussions, although you and I might say, well, of course it would. Um, and there's certainly no proof that fighting then, if you keep taking that line forward, will lead to long-term health problems and or personal tragedies, to use that euphemism again. But now we realize that internally they were saying that there is a direct line. Um, Bill Bailey's email, one of his emails during the string says, you know, um, fighting raises the incidence of head injuries slash concussions, which raises the incidence of depression onset, which raises the incidence of personal tragedies. Now, that email there to Brendan Shanahan and to Gary Bettman says top people at the NHL back in 2011 recognized that there, that there are links. And that goes against what they've been arguing in court for the last few years and what they've been saying publicly for many, many years.
0: Okay. Um, You know, my take on this, John, is that uh, the NHL doesn't want hockey, uh, doesn't want to take fights out of the game if it diminishes the fan experience or changes, uh, you know, what they do. Uh, And then the the NHLPA, the Players Association, they don't want to take fighting out of the game if it means uh, the jobs of, say, 10 to 20 NHLers. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, where do we lay the blame here? Who, who's protecting, who's keeping it in the game here?
2: Well, I think it's the NHL. Um, you know, they say, and, and some of these emails that we did not report on, you know, go back close to 10 years where the NHL at meetings, uh, Board of Governors meetings, for example, or Competition Committee meetings, are talking about, let's talk about fighting. And, and Gary Bettman said, I think back in 2009 or 2007, said it seems to be about half the people like it and half the people don't. To them it became an issue you know in the last 10 years do we want fighting do we not is it still popular does it still have a place so they've been having this internal debate for at least a decade um they could pull the plug on it at any time and we all know that they could change the rules and make it like every other sport where you just don't allow it uh, just it just cannot happen um except in the rarest of circumstances but i think they have thought there hasn't been a tipping point yet that. Hey, we are, our our arenas are full. The TV ratings are good. Fans seem to enjoy it. We've all been in the arena when a fight breaks out. People go crazy for it. Why would we change that? And now it turns out that maybe legally they may have to change that because their hand will be forced.
1: Now we mentioned at the outset. I mean, the NFL is also dealing with this issue. Uh, there, there are differences in in what the NFL is dealing with, what the NHL is dealing with. Um, but but where, where do these stories overlap
2: between the NFL and the NHL? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's a good question. The NFL was probably five or six or eight years ahead of the NHL in this, in terms of CTE. You know, the NHL now I believe has five or six former players have been diagnosed with CTE, which is the the brain disease that you can uh, that you get from repeated hits to the head. Not everybody gets it, but they've found five or six, including Derek Bogart and Bob Probert. Um, the NFL, when it got to about 17 or 18 um, former deceased players with CTE, is when the NFL kind of started to change its tune and said, you know what, concussions are an issue. We need to start thinking about player safety. Um, let's do at least a, kind of a public rollout about how now we really care about concussions, let's change our concussion protocol. The NHL sort of slowly has followed that arc. Um, and when the NFL got sued by hundreds of former players, they ended up settling that lawsuit a year or two ago for $1.2 billion, I believe. It, since then, now the NHL is fighting a very similar lawsuit that has, I think, 80-some players at this point. Um, and who knows if that will get settled or will actually wind its way and continue to wind its way through court. But the NHL sort of arc of this and how it's dealing with concussions is very similar to the NFL, just probably five or six years behind it.
1: And I guess the basic premise, though, is that these leagues knew the risks and either withheld information or, or downplayed information.
2: That that is very true. Um, and this is, you know, what you asked what makes these emails um you know, relevant today. It's that they have basically said, Look, we are not gonna admit anything. We don't know that there's any sort of link between these things and now we know internally that they believe that there was. Mm-hmm. And that 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 admission is gonna certainly be the biggest part of this court case to date that's been going on for two years. Um, you know, where it all goes, I don't know. Uh, but it certainly, you know, as you guys, as we're talking about it, it certainly opens up that debate over fighting all over again, which we seem to have every couple of years when either some sort of incident happens or right. somebody dies or or something. But um, yeah, it, it, it feels like the drum beat is slowly moving toward or going away from fighting. And um, this is just kind of the latest tipping point.
0: So yeah, you know we had Stu Grimson on this program uh not too long ago. Yep. So there's a lawyer who was also an NHL enforcer. So that's a particularly yeah. rare breed, but but uh Grimson said that look, I mean, this class action isn't going anywhere because he doesn't feel like uh the, the players can adequately argue that the the uh, NHL had a monopoly on that information that you know getting hit in the head is bad. And uh, that they didn't, you know, weren't in charge of taking their own risks. And I see a difference there between uh, the NHL. They, they send players out on the ice with, uh, let me put it this way. In the NFL, you're going to smash helmets against other players. That's like half of the positions right. on the field. Whereas in the NHL, you're not necessarily going to fall down on the ice. You're not necessarily going to get your your face smashed into the boards. So I guess I kind of see, uh, you know, the direction that he's coming from there. But I want to go back to one of these these emails that that you referenced in in your article, and it's the one where Bettman says that the bigger issue is whether the NHL Players Association, quote, would consent to, in effect, eliminate a certain type of role and player. And if they don't, we might try to do it anyway and take the fight, pun intended. So that's something that that Gary Bettman actually wrote. Is he basically saying there that, that ultimately it's not up to him to change the rules, that he needs the consent of the NHLPA to effectively eliminate these positions from their rosters?
2: Yeah, I I think that's what he's saying. I mean, it has come up over the years, and players on the competition co- committee, including Stu, Stu Grimson, um, and folks in the NF, NHLPA have basically said what you had said that um, we don't want to lose fighting. You know, of course, if you ask Stu Grimson, should there be fighting? He'll say yes. Um, if you ask pretty much any GM who's been part of the league for thirty years as a player and GM, they'll say yes. There should be fighting. It's part of the game. Um, and the PA has basically said the same thing. Um, you know, does the NHL, could the NHL change it if they wanted to? Absolutely. Um, but I, I think there's been a little bit of reluctance to really push it through um, a game that is really run by people who are former players um, and who love the game from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, kind of the rough, tough game that we all remember as kids. And, you know, nobody has stood up and said, you know what, or very few people have stood up and said, you know what, maybe what we're doing is wrong and we should actually change this. Uh, right. And so, you know, it's been discussed a lot over the last ten years. If you go back through his emails and you see it, it gets discussed, yeah. but then it basically says let's put it on the back burner. Well, fighting's I mean, fighting's down though. Ten years ago, so let's throw on the back burner.
1: Right. I mean, fighting's down. There seem to be fewer enforcers or fewer spots available for that that kind of a player.
2: Very much so. Um, yeah, I think we've we've seen sort of the end of that one-dimensional John Scott type of enforcer, um, or at least close to the end of that. And fighting is down. It's you know roughly half as many fights as there were back in five years ago, the season after after which you know three enforcers died. Um, it's not really much because of what the NHL has done, but I think it's just sort of ebbs and flows, and the NHL. When I talked to Gary Bettman about this four years ago for the for the book on Derek Bogart, you know his his take was, hey, it's going down. What it's harder to answer is, well, if it's a good thing that it's going down, then why not make it go down farther, or why not hurry that process? They've been they've been very reluctant to sort of get involved in all that and and just let it go reluctantly or let it, let it go organically. Right. And I think it, you know, I think they're happy to see it kind of go away as long as it doesn't take fans out of the seats or affect TV ratings. But they have not actively. Um, Taken a role in in trying to diminish
0: fighting, right? But as you say, it ebbs and flows, and so if it, it does and flow, yep. yeah, so if it comes back, you know, if we start to see an increase again, like I think back to Robin, you'll help me with this, but that twenty four seven, I guess it was Penguins Capitals, right? And it was Mike Green, who was the enforcer for the the Caps at the time. Uh, you know, I'm, I might be wrong, but the, the, to illustrate the point, you know, this the the parts that they followed with him in the documentary were how he's trying to punch his his way in, like to keep his career. Like his job is right. basically to go out on the ice and rack up some PIMS. And that was pretty much all, all there is to it because they're not, they're not right. sending him over the boards uh, in hopes that he's going to get, you know, the breakaway chance to win the game. So what I'm saying is this, and, 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 you know, before you got on the air with us, John, I was talking about the impact this has on, on what we do with youth in this country in particular. But yeah. if there's teenagers who are playing in any of the junior ranks, believing that, look, maybe my stick handling is not going to get me into the NHL, but I'm big enough that I might be able to punch my way up there. Then somebody is complicit in that thinking, and I'm of the Absolutely. mind that it's the NHLPA.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. When I wrote the book about Derek Bogart, um, that's kind of a lingering question, was, well, who's responsible for this? You know, it's a kid who was driven to try to find that backdoor entrance to the NHL. And was it his parents who pushed him? Was it the scouts who found him? Was it the junior coaches that threw him out there on the ice and said, go fight this kid? Um, you know, was it the minor pro leagues? Was it the NHL? You know, the carrot, the, the big carrot at the end. Was it the fans? I mean, you can take this in a million different directions. You know, if fans didn't love it, then we probably wouldn't be cheering on 16-year-olds fighting in the WHL. Um, There's a lot of people who are complicit in this. And I think what people who are um, starting to to go against fighting, and I'm not really trying to take sides here, but I think that that group of people, which is a growing number of people, it seems, are all looking for the adult in the room. And the NHL has not been the adult in the room. And um, maybe something like this changes it. Yeah. some who's going to stand up and say this is not good for kids and maybe it's not good for even adults, no matter how much money we pay them?
1: Well, we, we talk about these names like Derek uh, Bugard and, and Bob Probert and Rick Rippin and Wade, Wade Belak. There, there's a commonality there. I mean, um, you know, Pat LaFontaine wasn't a fighter. Paul Correa wasn't a fighter. Other NHLers have, have suffered issues related to multiple sure. concussions. Yeah. So how central is fighting to all of it in, in the NHL context?
2: Yeah, uh, it's a good question because, yeah, you know, people like Adam, those guys you mentioned, Adam Denmarsh, I covered with yeah. the Colorado Avalanche. Um, yeah, it's certainly not just fighting. I think where the NHL struggled is if we know that getting hit in the head is bad for your brain, then why would we allow the game to stop so, pe- so guys, large guys, can try to hit each other in the head and not step in? Um, we know it's going to happen during the course of the game, but why would we actually let the game stop and watch people and cheer them on as they try to inflict brain damage on one, on one another? That, that, that seems like it could be stopped, and that seems like the tough argument that the NHL now faces, is if you knew something was not good about getting hit in the head, then why would you allow it to happen and not step in when um, it wouldn't be that difficult, when you're the only yeah. sport that allows us to happen.
1: Well, especially when, when, was it five years ago when they made headshots with a specific penalty for that exact right. reason.
2: Right. They were willing to sort of try to deal with it to some extent during the course of a game, but they have never really stepped in and said, is this wrong? And yeah, you guys know, I mean, I've covered a lot of hockey and people in Canada don't, don't need to be told this, but anybody who does not understand the game of hockey, if you explain fighting to them, it makes absolutely no sense to them. Right. It's really hard to explain why that happens. And even the guys who fight sometimes can't explain fully exactly why it happens. It's just part of the game. But if we know that it's inflicting brain damage on people and potentially um, brain damage enough to cause personal tragedies, as Bill Daley calls them, then why are we doing it? And I think that's the question that the NHL is dealing with now, and now it's dealing with in in the court of law.
0: Well, uh, John, it's been a fascinating conversation. You should know that in, in our studio here we have two TVs. One is tuned to an American uh, national news outlet. One to a Canadian, and we're watching Ted, we're watching Ted Cruz on one, and we're watching uh, this top story in our country, which is this uh, NHL email leak. So, thanks very much for your reporting on this. You're
2: welcome. I won't get political, but I hope you guys are ready for a bunch of Americans to move over
0: the border. <laughs> you bet. They'd better damn well like hockey when they get here, pal. or We're going to build a wall. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, actually, that's, right. that's how they get into Canada, actually. They're right at the border, they have to <laughs> hop over the half wall.
1: That's right. <laughs> Thanks, John.
0: Uh, all right. All right. Appreciate got it.
1: it. There you go. Bye. John Branch uh, with the New York Times is also author of the book, Boy on Ice, The Life and Death of uh, Derek Bugard, which is uh, a hugely tragic story. And, and you know, because, I mean, it's a book about him, but it's also a book in a lot of ways about all these other players. And when, when these stories keep happening over and over again, y- you got to wonder, well, you know, it must be happening for a reason. And is the NHL contributing to it? But there is the question. Someone texted us to say, well, you know, hang on, guys. I mean, these guys know the risks. They're making a lot of money. They could have uh, not gone into the NHL and just, you know, got a regular lunch bucket, 9-to-5 job, but
0: uh, they chose this path. We're going to take a break right here. Dan's on the phone. We're going to get to his call afterwards. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. 974-8255,
1: Nine seven four eight two five five. the debate about fighting in the NHL back at the forefront. I think the NHL is going to have to address this. So now the New York Times, and NYTimes.com, you can read it for yourself, uh, publishing these emails, talking with these emails, where these very important figures like Gary Bettman are, are talking about the link between fighting and concussions and the link between multiple concussions and CTE. If that exists, we can establish that. Is that a basis for getting fighting out of the game?
0: That's, that's, that's just it. Let's get to the phones here. Dan's on the line. Hey, Dan, go ahead.
1: Hey, guys. Um,
3: did these adult hockey players not realize that punching each other in the face might have some consequences? Well, you know,
0: I, I get the question. And, look, I think grown men should be allowed to enter face-punching competitions as well. Um, but But I'll tell you this. If you're profiting off your enforcers and they're coming out of it with like hideous uh, trauma that leads to suicide without any sort of uh, you know care, um, and, uh, what am I trying to say here? Uh, with any uh, any sort of um, you know apparatus in place to take care of these people once they're done with the game, uh, you're doing somebody a disservice. I mean, we understand this with our veterans, right? Hey, you you, you, you volunteered for the army. We're going to send you into place where you might step on a landmine, but if your leg gets blown off, we'll take care of you for the rest of your life. <laughs> Whereas the argument with the NHL players is get out there, punch each other's face, make the fans go wild, we'll pay you until we're done with you, and then we're just going to basically toss you out.
3: Yeah, they'll pay the millions of dollars. Well, I just wonder... you got to be pretty when, special
0: to get paid the millions of dollars, but you're right.
3: Okay, so what, when's the prediction on you guys talking about punching in UFC.
1: well, But, but that's, that's the point, though, Dan. The U- UFC's not getting sued by fighters. Boxing's not getting... You know, the, the boxing organizations aren't being sued by fighters. It, it only becomes a legal issue if it can be demonstrated that the NHL knew about this, this evidence and, and suppressed it. If the NHL's going to players and saying, look, here's everything we know about the link between fighting and concussions and the link between and concussions and CTE. Here's all we know. And to be upfront with their athletes about it, and they still make the choice to, to do so, that's different. But you're right. The NHL is going to go to court and say, look, these guys are adults. Uh, they consented to this. But so if the NHL knows about it. it is suppressing it, then then maybe they do become liable at some level. But the, the broader question is that if we know this, should we be offended by the toleration you know, tolerating fighting in, in a right. hockey game? Should the NHL get rid of it?
3: So should we just have these hockey players sign the same waivers as the fighters? Like the UFC guys or boxers? That way they're acknowledging the risk, but they still want the millions?
0: I don't know. Well, I don't know if the NHL would would want to do that, but... It would change the bargain dramatically, though, Dan, wouldn't it? I mean, if somebody said to you, hey, here's the deal. Uh, We're going to pay you this much money, but when you come out of here, you're going to be eight times more likely to kill yourself. You're going to probably be be 75% more likely uh, to develop an addiction, and uh, you'll be likely broken destitute within 10 years. It might change the bargain a little bit for you to say, "Okay, well, I'll do it if you'll put these conditions in place." But I think that's what this lawsuit's about. And same so with the lawsuit support? from. Well, they no, it's need No, it's not even that, right? It's it's the whole package, and it's the same thing with the NFL, who said, "Look, you threw us out onto the field without without telling us that this is what our lives are going to be like in the end, and and now we need some some help." So
3: how come all of our fighters and UFC and stuff? Aren't depressed and but killing that's, themselves.
0: That's a non-starter, though, because the UFC under like they're they're not telling these guys that there's no uh, risk of grave injury when they get out there.
3: Okay, this it, it seems like the hockey players, like we've already said, but they should know the risk. It's not like we're dealing with
1: kids. Well, concussions are concussions. However, you got it, whether it's hockey, UFC, or falling down the stairs. Multiple concussions are going to have a cumulative effect, and this is sure. one of the things that can lead to. But it's, it's no coincidence that you know we, when we look at former NHLers who have died uh, as a result of these issues, there, there's a common thread there. They were all former enforcers,
0: right? okay i I hear you, Dan. I mean, they chose to do this, but the question is what did they choose to do? like what exactly did that mean, and I think that's what these lawsuits are about okay I
3: get
0: it hey take take care, pal, thanks for the phone thanks, call boys. yep
1: I get it i mean you want to talk it's not as so derek Bugard was was a rich guy i 'd be curious to to know if if Derek Bugard were alive and and fine, I was able to find this he he earned over his n h l career he started out at four hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in his last year he was earning one point seven million. Uh, The years he played in the NHL was a total of $5.3 million that he earned. Now, keep in mind, obviously, that in that tax bracket, you're paying about half in taxes. You're paying a chunk to your agent, escrow, escrow, all of that stuff. So I don't know how much of that he actually pocketed. And that's, what's this, about six seasons. So that's six years out of your life, you're earning a good living. How old was he when he retired? Uh, He retires. Last season was 2010, 2011. I'm not sure how old he was.
0: So anyway, the point is that
1: that money's got to last
0: him through retirement. For the rest of his life. Right. Well, he's born in 82, so. Okay, so I mean, like, if the guy's going to live, I mean, you're basically trying to stretch that out over five decades where most of us are trying to get two out of it, right? Two or three, two and a half.
1: Was he set for life? No. Right. I don't think so. Anyway, we got a break for the 1130 news. We're going to come back more time for your calls. We can keep, uh, keep talking about this. A lot to talk about here today. 974-8255. We're
0: back after this. Roger Kincaid and Rob Brickenridge. Weekdays starting at 930 a.m. on News Talk 770 Calgary.